John McCourt is the author of several books on James Joyce, including James Joyce, A Passionate Exile, and is the president of the International James Joyce Foundation. This is John McCourt. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right. Uh, I am here with John McCourt. Uh, sir, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Uh, I wanted to talk to you because you are a, uh, a scholar of a number of literary figures and movements, um, but I was particularly interested in your work on James Joyce, because he is uh, a guy who kind of um, seems as though he's an esoteric, uh, remote, uh, impenetrable figure, especially with books like Fitting Its Wake and to a lesser extent Ulysses. Um, and I was hoping maybe we could sort of break him down and, and you know, return him to human size. Okay. Um, so on that note, one of the things I thought was interesting um, from your experience with James Joyce is that uh, you were, I believe you said in one of your books that you were first introduced to him um, or to a copy of A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man by a, a certain father, Bruce Bradley, which... Yeah. For, for those who haven't read a portion of the artist, it, it's, it's, it's not exactly a, a, a book that is loving of Catholics. So I, I was curious how, uh, uh, how that interaction took place. Okay. Well, I was educated in Dublin by the Jesuits, priests, um, at Belvedere College, which was also the school that um, Joyce went to. He firstly he went to Clongoswood College, a boarding school, and then he went to the day school in Dublin, Belvedere. And of course, he would have got a very classic, uh, very tough education, very all-round classical education from the Jesuits. When I went there, 1974, 19 to 1984, uh, obviously it was a very different educational system. I would have said that the older Jesuits in the college would have most definitely disapproved of Joyce and really not talked about him too much, except to voice their disapproval. Bruce Bradley was then a young uh, Jesuit. He later went on to become headmaster of the school, um, who was attempting to teach 17-year-old boys um, in religion class. And um, his <clears throat> trying to keep us interested, I suppose, and so he decided to present um, a portrait of the artist as a young man in which you see Stephen Dedalus dealing with questions of faith, among many other things, questions of sexuality, questions of identity, um, <clears throat> and ultimately having invested in the faith, having invested in religion, in Catholicism, ultimately deciding to reject it, to reject it very forcefully. Um, and refusing to accept that in which he couldn't believe. Um, and so leaving the church and Stephen Dedalus choosing to become a priest of the imagination. And this, this journey, of course, is not dissimilar to the journey that Joyce himself uh, went through um, back in the 1890s. Now, uh, Bruce Bradley, Father Bruce Bradley, uh, took us through this, but he also... Um, had us read Thomas Merton's Seven Story Mountain, in which we see Merton um, in many ways dealing with the same questions of faith and unbelief and the, the nature of the church, but of course 
um, choosing to go in the very opposite direction to Stephen Dedalus. And I think what Father Bradley was trying to do was to have us think about questions of faith and show us two figures, two great intellectual figures who were grappling with the same kinds of issues, which I suppose are issues to do with uh, the meaning of life itself. And so he took us on uh, this on this journey, uh, these two journeys, uh, which, as I said, crisscrossed um, over um, common over common territory. And so that was the first encounter, I think, that I had um, with with James Joyce in, in a course that lasted maybe two months um, in school. And we read the work of these two authors. Now, wouldn't have been unusual um, in Ireland, particularly in the years before that, of course, to criticise Joyce very much in terms of his rejection of the Catholic faith. He was seen as some kind of an antichrist by many in Ireland. But interestingly, Thomas Merton um, had um, read a portrait of the artist and had been inspired by Joyce. And there were those who claimed that Joyce played an important role in leading Thomas Merton towards uh, the faith. Um, in any case, they, they certainly um, covered common ground. So that was that was my experience of reading Joyce in school. I, I understand. And that's that's an interesting point that you just made, that this guy was considered the Antichrist by some people in Ireland, where he's not fully accepted by a country that really defined him and his writing. And did, do you find that to be a, a kind of an odd situation? Well, I mean, <clears throat> we've got to look at 100 years of Joyce reception in Ireland. He was an he was an exile. He left the country, slamming the door behind him. And he attacked most of the people who probably could have helped make his reputation in Ireland, the small intellectual literary elite. Um, but more than that, he kind of attacked what became the basic pillars of um, the modern Irish state, which of course only got its constitution in 1922 after the 1916 rising. 1922, of course, was the year in which Ulysses was published. The, um, the New Ireland, which was born, had promised great social change. Instead, it became a very conservative place and the role of the Catholic Church became absolutely dominant. And of course, um, one of Joyce's major targets, if you like, was um, the Catholic Church and the, the role that it exercised in Ireland in every aspect of people's lives. I don't think we can underline enough just how dominant the, the church was and the government, the new government, uh, very much formed a secondary kind of power which had to kowtow to the bishops and the clergy in the early decades of the state. And Joyce would have been uh, very much aware of this. I mean, Joyce always believed that Ireland had been twice colonized. He talks about Christ, where the country where Christ and Caesar are hand in glove. Caesar, of course, representing empire, representing colonialism, representing the British presence in Ireland. And he thought that would be difficult enough to get rid of the British, but it would be far more difficult to get rid of the Roman Catholic Church. And so it's no surprise that uh, he was not uh, applauded universally in Ireland for his fairly um, um, hard, hard um, depictions of um, what life was like in Ireland and how um, the, the moral compass in the country was set by just one, one dominant group and that of the priests. And so his uh, Ulysses was largely denounced by people uh, who, of course, never read it. Um, it was not widely available in Ireland. It was never banned in the country, but it wasn't widely available. There were 
one or two bookshops in Dublin where you could find it. Um, <clears throat> and as I say, um, people relied on a kind of a shorthand dismissal of Joyce. It really, uh, but there were there were early figures, of course, who recognised his Ulysses as a kind of an alternative vision for Ireland, almost an alternative to the 1922 very Catholic constitution. Um, and they saw in a figure like Leopold Bloom, a kind of model of moderation and openness and you know, um, acceptance of difference, the kind of things that were very difficult in Ireland. But yes, the majority of people rejected Joyce. The rejection deepened as the country grew even more closed and conservative in the 1930s and in the 1940s. And then eventually in the 1950s, uh, the emergence of a new generation of writer um, began to see a reclaiming, if you like, of Joyce. And in 1954, the first celebration in Dublin of um, Bloomsday, the 16th of June, 1904, with a group of writers um, uh, led by the poet uh, Patrick Kavanagh and the, um, the novelist Flann O'Brien, Miles Nagopoline, who uh, went to the tower in Sandymount and basically went on a pub crawl for the day, but who were openly celebrating uh, Joyce in the, for the first time in the country. And then that was followed in the 60s by the opening of the Tower Museum, always in Sandy Mount, which is, of course, in Sandy Cove, which is, of course, where the opening chapter of Ulysses um, is said to take place. And um, that led to, I suppose, an even bigger reclaiming in 1982 when the country celebrated, with some reluctance, it has to be said, the centenary of Joyce's birth. And that was the very year in which I found myself at school finally uh, reading a portrait of the artist as a young man. So I think Ireland is still coming to terms um, with Joyce since then. Certainly far more people read him now. Certainly the Ireland, the current Ireland, is much more reflective of the kind of values that Joyce was, if you like, heralding or signalling in Ulysses. It's a much more diverse place, a much more open economy, a much, a much less provincial place than the country that Joyce uh, wanted to uh, just depict in his in his writings um, uh, and so he has been accepted a bit more in this new Ireland as a kind of a symbol of of the Europe a European figure that many Irish people uh, would look up to um, and at the same time of course he's exploited in Ireland as a kind of um, an icon that will attract tourists to the country and you find Joyce statues and Joyce pubs and Joyce thimbles and um, he's, he's kind of everywhere in Dublin whether that means that lots and lots of people are reading him, uh, of course, is an open debate. But uh, he is he is a much more central figure now than he ever was before. And I think he is the dominant Irish writer um, of the 20th century, uh, the one who um, did the most daring things in fiction and created a huge artistic space, which Irish artists, and I mean artists, I mean painters, I mean movie makers, I mean uh, novelists and poets, uh, can, can kind of occupy now, if you like, um, in his wake, because he opened up a huge territory for them. So they have, they have many reasons to be grateful for him. Whereas in the earlier period, let's say in the, in the 1950s and 60s, many of our writers felt Joyce as a kind of a burden, a dark, looming shadow um, that had accomplished so much that his, his presence was almost disabling. Now I think it's, it's quite different. I think people mm -hmm. um, with the distance of time uh, have come to terms with Joyce and learned to to revel in his in his if you want to call it in his shadow. Well, that's well, 
one of the things you said in there where he attacked people early on who could have helped his literary career in, in Ireland. Why would he do that? Well, because he felt they were part of a kind of a status quo um, because he never wanted really to belong to any literary movement and have to kowtow to anybody else because he was a born rebel who felt the need, I think, to establish a distance between himself and what he perceived at the time in Ireland as the kind of powers to be. So in Joyce's time, the great literary figure was, of course, um, W.B. Yeats, the poet. And Yeats reigned supreme in Dublin at that time. And it was very hard to do anything if you were a writer without Yeats's support. And um, famously, um, and there are many versions of this, um, when Joyce was a very young man, maybe around uh, 21 or something like that, he or 20, he met Yeats and um, they had a, a brief conversation and Joyce told Yeats, it's a pity we meet. And Yeats was, of course, at this point in his late, probably around 40, he, he told Yeats, it's a pity we've met so late because I won't be able to influence you. So he turned the tables on Yeats. Of course, it should have been the other way around. Now, he openly provoked someone like Yeats or other figures like George Russell. But at the same time, Joyce... Joyce was steeped in the literary traditions of, of the country, indeed, of, of, of English literature in general and Irish literature in general and indeed European literature. And of course, he made a lot of fun of, of um, the kind of the canon as he inherited it, but um, he was deeply qualified to do so. There was nothing superficial uh, about the way Joyce dealt with such figures. But yes, he didn't make life easy for himself um, in, in Ireland because he felt underappreciated in that Ireland by people like Yeats and some of Yeats's kind of um, coterie. And um, he, he, he desperately felt, I think, the need to put distance, psychological distance between himself and the country in order to be able to, to write about it from what he calls in Finnegan's Wake, the safe side of distance. Mm. Well, was Yeats, did, did he not appreciate James Joyce? He did, but uh, as a younger writer, he rejected a translation that Joyce, that, that, um, Joyce had done for what became the Abbey Theatre. Um, Joyce had uh, proposed a, a translation of the German playwright Hauptmann, uh, which Yeats had refused because Yeats was more interested in doing Irish folk theatre. And Joyce saw this as a sign of parochialism or provincialism and felt that the Irish theatre should be opening itself up to the great uh, European names, uh, whereas he felt Yeats was not was not doing that. What Yeats was interested in doing was, was growing a native tradition. So they were on very different uh, trajectories, let's say. Yeats certainly appreciated Joyce. He supported Joyce over the years. Later years, he defended Ulysses in Ireland. He defended Ulysses in the Senate when he was a senator in Ireland from charges of obscenity. Um, but they were very different figures. Yeats was a kind of patrician figure, uh, an Anglo-Irish writer, um, a writer whose aesthetic was uh, far more rural, far more linked to the countryside early on, far more linked to, to County Sligo and to myth and the lore of Ireland. Later, Yeats would change, of course, and would be hugely affected by, by modernism. Uh, whereas Yeats, whereas Joyce was the great urban writer who who chose prose over poetry, uh, who chose in the early works social realism and, and uh, an attempt to, let's say, uh, dissect Irish society through the focus of his, um, what he calls his nicely polished looking glass in the 
in the short stories of Dubliners. So, so their styles were very, very different. They were on different stylistic planets, really. They, they had little in common in that sense. I see. And one of the things that's curious about all this is that I believe he went into exile when he was something like 22. Like that's, yeah. that's awfully young to decide to just leave your country forever and not just do it as a, as a young guy in, in you know, a, 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 just a moment of passion, but to commit to it for the rest of your life. What motivated him to leave? Well, I think there were m- multiple reasons for his leaving. Um, his he was he was the eldest son of of, of a very large family, and um, his family were in great financial difficulties. And I think he didn't want to get pulled down by those difficulties. He was lucky enough to get a good education as the oldest son before financial disaster hit. Um, Ireland was a very economically depressed place at the time, and so it would have been very difficult for him to make a living. And of course. Uh, he was he wasn't unique in leaving the country at that time even though he was a a voluntary exile if you want um joyce i think placed at the center of everything he did his writing and the ability to write and to if you like frame ireland in prose and i think he felt he would have been swallowed up by ireland by its troubles by its politics by its smallness if he had stayed on in the country and so he desperately needed to get another perspective on Ireland, and the way to do that was to was to travel abroad, was to go to Europe, was to seek to be a European writer rather than an Irish writer in any sense. Uh, there's also a very practical other reason why he left. He wanted to live with Nora Barnacle, his partner, who we'd met in June of 1904, and they left in October of 1904. He, he wanted to live with her. Um, you couldn't really respectably live with a woman in Ireland um, without marrying her at that time. We use the phrase uh, to living in sin and he would have been considered to have been living in sin with Nora. So it was just easier to get out of that uh, atmosphere and to go and live his life. And there was something uh, a little bit accidental and occasional about uh, where he ended up. I mean, he headed to Zurich thinking there was a job there in the Berlitz school and there wasn't. And he then found himself in in Trieste and then in, in Pola, which is today in Croatia, and, and in, the, in the middle, if you like, of Middle Europe. But on another level, of course, we could argue, and he argued himself, that he never really left Ireland at all, because psychologically his focus always was, was looking backwards to Dublin. Ulysses is set, you know, published in 1922, but stubbornly set in the Dublin of 1904, of the year in which he left. I think so as it could be a uh, if you like, in some way, a reliable reflection on the city that he left behind. He didn't know the Dublin of 1916 or 1920, so he didn't. Uh, he chose not to write directly um, about it. So his exile was the necessary condition for his art, and that's, I think, why he left. Stephen Dedalus famously chooses silence, exile, and cunning as his three arms, the three means through which he would come to express himself as a writer. Um, of course, Stephen Dedalus in Joyce's works doesn't ever really come to express himself as a writer, but Joyce did. And I think the first key was to stay out of the public debate. That's, in a sense, the silence and the, the exile is self-explanatory. It's, it's becoming a European um, settling in and absorbing 
um, what he could find uh, on his way, and and cunning in some way, being um, developing this skill, uh, which would l- allow him to survive. I think he wanted to get away from the church, which wouldn't have allowed, which he believed didn't allow freedom of thought, freedom of expression, and which would have attacked him even more fiercely had he stayed in the country. So in order to be able to express himself freely, he felt the need for distance. That's interesting that he chose not to get involved or not to, to you know, when you say silence, not speak out publicly on, on a lot of political issues, which a lot of writers, artists today, uh, just, you know, they're always speaking about political issues. Why do you think that was important for him as an artist? I think Joyce, Joyce knew how important his writing could be. I think he took a very long view on it. I think he thought he would have just been another voice had he got involved in the contemporary debate. Um, And so he chose to basically stay away from it. He stayed away from journalism. Um, He stayed away from those other, you know, things that could have sapped, if you like, um, his energy from the the main job, which was writing novels. And I think he knew it would take a long time to change Ireland. And I I do think he wrote his novels with a view to hoping to influence and change the country. But he knew that was something which was going to happen uh, over time. And um, it was probably um, the best tactic possible to stay quiet and to write quietly and to keep his gaze firmly fixed back on Ireland, but firmly fixed on his on his writing and on the bigger project. Remember, Ulysses took him seven years uh, to write. Finnegan's Wake took him the best part of 17 years. Um, and he, he worked really hard. Um, it wasn't that he was slacking. He was a hard worker in the early years. Of course, he did a lot of teaching as well in order to, to make a living. But um, every sentence was worked out with the the suffering that you would expect from a romantic poet. Um, famously, his one of his friends in um, Zurich met him one day, you know, after a day's work and said, how did you get on today? And he said, good, I, I managed to write two sentences. Yeah. And uh, the guy said to him, uh, Frank Budgen said to him, two sentences, what's the problem? Can you not find the words? And he said, no, no, I have all the words. The problem is getting all the words into the right order. And um, so there's that almost, um, it's, it's almost fanatical fixation on style and technique and uh, the right order of words, almost like composing music. So Joyce was not quick in doing, in, in, in his composition. He, he, he went at it um, in, in an extremely intricate, intricate way, working with his notebooks and um, trying to string it all together and um, trying to surprise us, I suppose, in prose, because uh, no two sentences of Joyce's are the same. And uh, the writer is constantly um, in over the four great books seeing completely different styles. I wouldn't call it an evolving style because it's not as if it just goes to something better all the time, but it's always a changing style, a transformational style. And um, that places, of course, uh, a lot of demands also on the readers, uh, which is, of course, one of the other reasons that not only in Ireland, but elsewhere, uh, particularly the later books were greeted with a certain amount of scepticism and even uh, hostility, partly because they were just difficult to read. Yeah, and and that's one of the things you you wrote about in your, um, you know, speaking of things that are like autobiographical, a lot of his work is autobiographical. you wrote in your, your book, uh, James Joyce, A Passionate Exile, um, something like, uh, because he was so autobiographical in his writing, sometimes he even went so far as to like make things happen in real life so that he could fictionalize them later. 
you, do you know what I'm referring to there? Are, are there any examples of that? Well, um, that book <laughs> I wrote, no, it's over 20 years ago. Um, so it's, it's vague enough now in my mind. But okay. yeah, um, I think everything he did was at the service of his writing. I think he, he, it was the number one focus. And I think his family, for example, paid a big price for his uh, total absorption. Um, in in his writing that's where all the energy uh, went um yeah i mean he was one of the central themes of ulysses is the theme of betrayal um the molly bloom uh, betrays her husband leopold bloom with uh, blazes boylan um and bloom somehow permits this to happen and it's a kind of an arrangement unspoken arrangement that they have which is a means of keeping their marriage alive even though it's it's less than uh, spectacularly happy. Um, Joy certainly pushed uh, his partner Nora towards betrayal in Trieste, um, involving a friend of his, a journalist um, from the local newspaper, Roberto Prezioso. Um, the betrayal didn't happen, but encouraged by Joyce, Prezioso certainly made a pass at, um, at, at Nora. And um, it seems that Joyce did this almost just to to try and understand what it felt like to to live the the threat of betrayal, so that he could write about it. Um, so you know, he he also famously said at one point, "I I have no imagination," and um, which is quite a thing for a creative writer to say. Um, I'm like a blind man. I stumble I stumble along and I knock with my stick into the things that I meet along the way. So I mean, he has no imagination in terms of the imagination of a of uh, somebody who writes Harry Potter. Um, his stories are stories of everyday life, of lived experience, of what he hear, heard and knew. And it was certainly dangerous uh, to know him because you could end up in his fiction, even under your own kind of factual guise. And, um, you know, he got into trouble with a number of people in Dublin because of his very, sometimes not very generous depictions of them uh, in his fiction. Um, so there's an interesting mixture in, in Ulysses in particular of the real and the imaginary. And uh, lots of people saw themselves um, in his book and saw themselves even in, in you know, in, in disguised form as, as Joyce put them in. So he wrote about what he saw in front of him. Yeah. And one of the things that's kind of curious about uh, James Joyce um, and the experimental quality of his his work where he makes a lot of these like wild word associations especially in like Finnegan's Wake um and I think it was someone correct me if I'm wrong I, I thought it was someone like Carl Jung or something like that said to James Joyce you know like uh because his daughter was, was mentally ill like uh you're you know you're swimming in whatever this mm -hmm. thing is and your daughter's drowning in it um, mentally, what is going on there? How did that affect his art? His daughter's illness, you mean? Uh, sure, but also the fact that at least I think it was Carl Jung pointed yeah, out. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. He's, you know, James Joyce is not ill in that sense, but has you know, kind of uh, similar mental experience. Yeah, I think. I mean, he he lived on the edge. He. He got involved in an experiment in Finnegan's Wake, which many judged to be absolute, you know, on the on the edge of madness, uh, on the level of obsession. Uh, a book that ultimately, in a sense, can never be read in the normal sense of the word, because exactly as you said, there are so many word word associations. Each word 
it has multiple possibilities for um, interpretation and um, it's, it's hard to piece together meaning in the normal sense that we intend meaning. Um, so I think Joyce, you know, uh, dabbled there in, a, in, a, in dangerous, maybe in dangerous waters. Um, his daughter, absolutely, Lucia, um, um, struggled to find a means to express her own creativity. I mean, Joyce's means was, was writing, was, was Finnegan's Wake. Uh, Lucia was worked as a as a dancer for a while, but that failed. She she worked as an illustrator of some of Joyce's own books, but ultimately she didn't find an outlet for her talent. And she had a lot of talent, and um, you know um, that led to depression. And she had the disappointment in 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 love, disappointment with Samuel Beckett, and uh, I think Joyce probably realized too late that, uh, as you said. Um, she was, in a sense, uh, drowning, and he he tried everything to try and um, keep her afloat. Um, but she probably needed a lot more help when she was a young girl, not when she was a young adult. And so there's a there's a terrible element of tragedy around um, Lucia's story, um, one which is, I think, um, exploited a little bit nowadays in countless novels and theatrical pieces about her. Um, she is a figure that is constant. People constantly go back to, and she was a bit of a muse uh, to Joyce. Something that his wife Nora was a bit jealous of. And um, he did look to her for inspiration, but she was she was fragile, and I don't think medicine was ready to be able to um, capable of of kind of dealing with her the nature of her illness. She was probably uh, manic depressive, um, but she was diagnosed as a as a schizophrenic. And of course, um, spent the greater part of her adult life um, in a home in Northampton. So her story is is terribly sad, and the story of of Giorgio, the the son, is also sad. And again, I suppose it speaks of Joyce. Joyce put all of his humanity, if you like, into into his books, and there was precious little left for his for his family. I mean, that's he lived, he breathed his his writing and his books, and they were what gave his life. Um, meaning of what helped him make sense of the world he was living in um and um they they are the that you know the tragic um consequences of of that kind of way of living and the other thing that was unusual of course he was he was a drinker he was irish um an irish man of his time and uh, most normally in an irish household <clears throat> at that time it would have been the mother who kind of kept the family together but um, Nora was as, as lacking in parental skills and fam- family building skills as Joyce was himself. And so they had a very scattered childhood going from apartment to apartment in, in, in Trieste initially and, and in Rome and in, in Zurich and Paris. And so they had no home and uh, no home even in language, you know, and um, Lucia is, is not, you know, her mother tongue was was English, but her English was spoken with a with a strong accent. She grew up in 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 Italy, so she learned the Trieste dialect. Dialect. Then she was moved to uh, Zurich, where she learned um, Swiss German, and then she was brought back to Trieste. So she was going from one linguistic place to another, and um, I think not having feeling at home in a language uh, is is something that can render somebody very. Um, unanchored, very un, un, very fragile, uh, and this certainly was the case for for Lucia. And I mean, you could argue that there was an element of that in Joyce himself, in the way that he used language in in Finnegan's Wake, because there are, of course, multiple languages in that book which reflect 
the languages that he lived and learned in his time in Europe, but also the ones that he learned just simply through through reading. Um, but it's a similar, if you like, experiment in language. And you could say that maybe Joyce's experiment worked, but um, uh, certainly uh, what Lucia went through was 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 um, was anything but successful. Yeah, and, and it's curious to me um, with, with the whole background of his family, et cetera, um, and looking at how um, at the time it seems like Ulysses, I mean, I remember, you know, hearing stories of like, you know, plumbers getting together and reading it uh, in reading groups and like Marilyn Monroe is reading Ulysses. And um, nowadays it strikes people as being this like really um, challenging and, and an academic and not um, for the masses um, kind of art, which I don't imagine is what Jay, uh, James Joyce intended. So how did that process happen where um, it, it went from being among the this book being among the people to being, uh, you know, something put on a pedestal in a university. Well, I mean, it has to be said that Ulysses is not easy, yeah, and there's no getting away from that. Um, it has to be said that it's you know, um, it, it, it's it, the more knowledge you have, the more knowledge you bring to it, the more it gives back to you. So if you understand the Homeric parallels, because you know something about the Odyssey, that enriches your experience of reading Ulysses, undoubtedly. Um, Joyce, however, continually said that uh, he'd written a comic book. He'd written a book that was funny. And he despaired that people didn't seem to see the humour in his writing. I think it's a pretty Irish sense of humour sometimes that sometimes academics fail to um, get their head around, uh, particularly non-Irish academics. And sometimes they explain, it's like when you explain a joke, you just kill it. Um, and so there's, there is sometimes that sense that academia has over-explained Joyce or has created at times a level of difficulty to add to the already difficult experience of reading his book. Um, Nora used to complain that she couldn't sleep because the man in the next room, Joyce, was laughing so much as he wrote as he wrote the pages of Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake. I personally find large parts of Ulysses and even Finnegan's Wake very funny, but I, I would also admit that I find large parts of it not that funny at all. Um, so yeah, in order to try and explain Joyce, um, of course, an academic industry was formed. Uh, particularly in the decades after the Second World War, and it was dom dominant. The, the American um, input into that was was definitely uh, the dominant one. And um, I think a lot of Americans at that time just missed some of the basic information that they needed uh, and which they could have got um, if they had spent more time in Dublin, just absorbing the city. Because reading Ulysses, if you know your way around Dublin, becomes an altogether different experience. But I would argue that a lot of people nowadays read Ulysses, um, um, read Ulysses on their own, read Ulysses in groups. There are, you know, groups called like Ulysses for All. I know there's one in Dublin in the James Joyce Centre and, and that attracts people of all different sorts of backgrounds. And the beauty of it is that everyone can bring something to the reading of, of the book. It's not a book to sit down and read in a hurry. That kind of kills it. It's a book to slowly unravel, to, to, 
treat almost like, and I'm not saying a sacred text, that's going too far, but almost in the nature of biblical exegesis, where you unravel uh, each, each sentence and indeed each, each word, each phrase, uh, until you arrive at some kind of a sense of what it means. Now, that's one thing to do the kind of hands-on reading, close reading of the text. That's very rewarding, like the way you read a difficult poem. Um, it's another thing uh, to to read some of the works of criticism that have been written over the years about Joyce, which, as I say, uh, add a filter of of difficulty rather than um, you know being an invitation to to read Ulysses. And sometimes academics um, get in their own way, and um, it's the nature of the academic world, I suppose, that a lot of what we write, sadly, we write for our fellow academics and the fifteen people who read the. The academic article um, and um, that seems more important than actually leading people through texts. I mean I just wrote a guide to the reading to reading Ulysses in Italian because it seemed to me that there wasn't a hands-on book that would help an Italian, an educated Italian who wanted to take on Ulysses for the first time. So you know you you have to set up the parallels and and introduce chapter by chapter and um, and try and help orient the reader. And I know people have used that, and it has helped them get through get through the book. And not only in um, not only in um, in Italy, um, but there are similar books, of course, in in English. Many of them. The reason I wrote it in Italian was I I, I felt that there are lots of people who read it in translation and uh, who don't speak English. And um, of course, that's a different experience. But they they were equally deserving of a kind of a guide to to bring them to. The book. There's also an argument in favour, and I, I say this a lot. Um, Ulysses is made up of eighteen long and difficult episodes, all very different from each other. It, almost you could read each of them separately. So I, I'm also um, in favour of a kind of an a la carte reading. So you know you don't have to necessarily sit down and read it from beginning to end. But a bit like the way we often listen to to opera, for example, people go back to the same arias and they tend to listen to them over and over again because they're the bits that they like. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and gradually, I think the other bits kind of grow on you. And uh, but Ulysses is a book you have to spend time with and allow it to, to, grow, to grow on you. Now, that's not a very academic thing to say, but um, that's certainly been my experience of, of living with the book for, for many years. Yeah, and I'm curious your thoughts on the fact that it seems like there's a kind of a, a progression artistically in, in his work where... Um, Correct me if I'm wrong. A Dubliners uh, comes before a portrait of the artist as a young man, correct? Yeah. Um, and Dubliners, you read a story like The Dead, very accessible. It, it's, you know, it, in terms of its experimental avant-garde qualities, it doesn't really strike me as this. Um, if I read that and just that, I, I wouldn't imagine that the writer would turn into someone who wrote Finnegan's Wake. But it goes from that to a portrait, which is a little bit more experimental with, you know, like the, the opening lines. Um, and then you get Ulysses, which is, you know, much more wild. And then Finnegan's Wake, which, which is, I, I've read all those other books, except for Finnegan's Wake. I, I just, I can't get into it. Uh, I'm sure I, I, I've read Ulysses and powered through it and really liked it. And I'm sure that if I put the time in, I, I could get something out of it. But first off, what the hell is going on with that book? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, you know, 
It's a big question. I mean, you're right. There is there is a journey in Joyce from what he calls himself the scrupulous meanness of Dubliners. These very short, short stories, um, which are fairly easy to, um, as you say, to read and to comprehend and to get something from. Uh, Dubliners, um, sorry, the dead is is if you like a step up, a step up in complexity um, compared to the others. It's a much more uh, lyrical, thank you. much more lyrical book um, or short story. It's hugely, um, it's much, much longer than the other stories. Um, and it's doing much more complex things. Um, so there's already progression in, in Dubliners. You're right, then we get into a portrait, which is much more naturalistic style. There's the stream of consciousness begins to, to develop. And uh, Joyce is, you know, widening his set of tools uh, of writerly tools to try and convey the complexity of experience i suppose um and then that the style gradually in ulysses becomes the protagonist language becomes the protagonist and not simply the means to an end so uh, increasingly instead of focusing on character for example or plot the reader finds himself a, a almost admiring language and how joyce is using it um and also, I think, seeing the limits of language to comprehend and describe reality. And then we get to Finnegan's Wake, where, as you say, um, you know, all the rules are out the window and the reader is bamboozled by the complexity um, of, of the book, which I think Joyce believed was a necessary complexity, a, ne a necessary babel, uh, this mixing of languages um, uh, which he felt he needed to do in order to, to get across the, the the kind of babel that we live in um, of meaning and half understood things. I think Joyce was also writing that book in, in the 30s when, you know, fascism was on the rise, the rise and nationalism was on the rise um, and there was, there was only one language allowed in each country and anything anybody who spoke differently was not part of the tribe. And Joyce was engaged in what he called this confusioning of, of, of languages and, and indeed of, of human races, of, 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 of nations, and trying to get across the complexity and the interconnectedness. And so, you know, if you're from Denmark, you'll read it in one way. If you're from Italy, you'll see a whole different path through Finnegan's Wake. And uh, I suppose that's it. It's not a book that lends itself to the kind of reading that we're used to doing. It's a book that makes us think about the nature of the novel itself, the nature of language, the, the very limited capacity that we have to actually make ourselves understood. And it's a book which I think um, um, is very much um, a, a harbinger of the times that we live in now, where there is such an excess of language and of, of words and of means of communication, and uh, very often very little which is actually communicated that is of, of value. So I think it's a book that speaks very much to our to our modern times and troubles and um, uh, to, um, you know, a lot of people not being able to read anything longer than a tweet. Um, so it's 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 a work which in any case makes us think about um, literature and belief systems and the ways that we construct meaning in our in our lives and in our ideologies. And it seems to continue to defy us when we try to to construct a, a beginning, middle and an end as we go through it or a, an explainable kind of um, interpretation of it. 
Um, we, we're still learning maybe to read it. It's still beyond most of us. But listen, it can be great fun. Um, there are huge passages of it, which we do, we are able to negotiate now and which are great sources of, of humour and of insight and of, um, of all the things that we expect to get from a novel. There are also big black holes uh, that we just don't really understand yet. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a complex novel. It's like mining into the side of a mountain and hoping you get out the other side when you, when you, try, to write, when you try to read it. And um, you'll never read it the same way twice, unlike, you know, a classic novel. So it's, uh, yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a big challenge. And um, one of the reasons we're still reading Joyce is that we have, we don't feel like we've exhausted him. We don't feel like we've completely understood him. And he continues to defy our best, our best efforts. And I suppose that's what, that's, that's part of the thing that makes him such a great writer. And as we're wrapping up here, what do you think he would have done artistically after Finnegan's Wake? Like, what can you do? Did he have any plans? Well, I mean, that's the book of the night. It's the book of the dark. There, there, you know, there are stories that he had intended to write something much simpler after that. Um, you know, because he was capable of writing relatively straightforward, simple poetry, for example. He, he did publish two books of poetry. Um, I, he, I don't think he could have gone any further in the direction that that book brought him. So I think there would have been a necessary um, turn and I suspect that turn would have been back to something, um, you know, less less complex, less full. I mean, in many senses, Beckett took the turn back. If Joyce packs everything in and overloads Finnegan's Wake with meaning and potential, his disciple in breaking with him, Samuel Beckett, then starts writing his early novels and his plays, which empty out the texts, strip them of all of this excess meaning and take it down to something very, very bare and essential and um, not simple. I'm not saying that, but certainly the, the overload that you get in Joyce is gone. Maybe Joyce would have gone that route himself, but I mean, who knows? Who knows what he would have done? Um, it's sadly he died just so very, you know, just, just as it came to an end. And um, he called it, of course, work in progress for so many years as though, as though it was progressive, um, it was pro- progressing. Um, but he also called it Finnegan's Wake, the end again. Um, so he presumably would have done what he did with Ulysses, which is he would have started to correct it. He would have um, you know, done another edition of it, which would have been less incorrect than the one that he published because famously um, both Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake were full of, of textual errors. Uh, particularly Ulysses because of the fact that it was put together by a French language speaking typesetter. Um, so he, he, he probably would have continued to fix it up and he might have encouraged some scholarship around it as to how he might read it. But I, I suspect as a writer, he would have had to take a dramatic turn in a different direction, but I can't tell you more than that because it's speculation. Fair enough. Um, John, is there anywhere that people can reach you or resources that you, you think people should reach out to? Resources uh, for, for reading Joyce, you mean? Uh, sure. Or a- anything, uh, you know, like a website you got or, you know, a Twitter or anything like that. Uh, okay, yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter, all right, at McCourt Italy, because um, I'm based in Italy. I have been for over 30 years now. 
Um, so I, I lived a long time in Trieste, which is, of course, where Joyce lived for 10 years of his life. And in a way, that's what brought me to deepen my my interest in Joyce. So they can get me on Twitter at McCourt uh, Italy or they'll find me at the university where I teach, the University of Maturata. If they just Google John McCourt Maturata, it should be the only one living in that particular corner of Italy. And um, yeah, it'd be great to hear from them. Um, also, the I'm president of the International James Joyce Foundation, which is as its base in, of all places, Tulsa, Oklahoma, where there's a big Joyce repository. Uh, big Joyce collection, and uh, I can also be contacted through there. How, how did Tulsa, Oklahoma, capture James Joyce? Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, uh, because uh, Tom Staley, who was the um, the professor of English there back in the I suppose the sixties, and um, was in charge of the um, the McFarlane Library uh, special collections, began to buy Joyce materials and got the collection from. Um, um, Richard Elman, who of course was the great Joyce biographer, and gradually put together this massive collection of, of Joyce materials. And um, ever since then, there's been a, a special collection connection with with Tulsa, which is also the the, the place that publishes the main, um, the most prestigious Joyce journal, which is called the James Joyce Quarterly, and that that also comes out of out of Tulsa. So that's an unexpected reason to visit to visit Oklahoma. But there you go. All right. Uh, well, listen, John, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I appreciate it. And uh, thank you. Yes. And, and have a great rest of your day. Okay. You too. Mind yourself. Take care. All righty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to John McCord. And thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.